Let's pray together. Father, we are indeed in awe of you and your goodness to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for your word which you have given to us. And now as we come to your word, Lord, uh, by your Spirit, help us to understand. May it be applied to our lives, Lord, so that we might hide your word in our hearts, so we might not sin against you. Lord, we're thankful uh, to be able to read the Scriptures and to hear them this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2.3 billion dollars. 2.3 billion dollars. That is the estimated value of the motivational speaking industry next year. Now maybe you think that sounds like that's about right. Uh, but I heard 2.3 billion dollars and I thought, wow, we are lazy people who need some motivation. And people will pay a lot of money to get motivated, apparently. We didn't charge here this morning, so... Well, the text we're going to be looking at this morning talks a little bit about motivation, has some motivational elements in it. And motivation isn't a bad thing. Uh, You know, we think about sports teams gathering the athletes before the big game or match and uh, the coach or the leader of the team motivating them. Let's do all the things we worked on in practice. Let's work together so we can have victory in this game and match, or maybe a a boss or a manager who uh, is motivating their employees to finish a job or to finish a project that's happening in their office or through their business. Maybe you think of a lot of movies, like I've thought of, where there's those big motivational scenes maybe uh, with the sports teams or even those who are leading others into battle. Uh, As I was thinking about this week, Sir William Wallace came to mind, leading the Scots into battle, uh, that iconic scene. Well, this morning, as I said, we're going to be in the book of Jude, and there's an element of motivation happening in the text we'll be looking at this morning. We'll be in Jude in the first four verses, and there's something that Jude is particularly calling the recipients of his letter to, and then he kind of provides some motivation for them exhorts them and says, here's a little bit of motivation for you, uh, for what I've called you to do. So let's read the text. And after we read the text together, we're going to see, first we'll see that exhortation that Jude gives to the readers of the text. And then we'll see three motivations that go along with that exhortation. Let's read through the text together and then we'll look at it. Jude 1 through 4. Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
So as we begin this morning, we'll take a moment just to look at a brief background or context of the book of Jude, and then we'll see what is his exhortation, and then what are three motivations to that exhortation. So first, a little background and context. We ask the question, who is Jude? Uh, What's he writing about? Who's he writing to? Jude is not uh, one of the books of the Bible that is frequently looked at. It's a smaller epistle of the general epistles. And we learn from the beginning that it's written by Jude. Well, who is Jude? Jude was a fairly common name at the time, Jude or Judas in Greek. So you know of several Judases in the Bible. Uh, But he helps us know who he is by saying that he has a brother who is named James. So if you look through the scriptures, you'll find that there is only one Judas in the scriptures who has a brother named James, which means we're talking about James, who is the leader in the church in Jerusalem. Think of Acts 15 and the council of the church gathering together, and James is the leader of the church. That's the James he's referring to, or James who wrote the book of James you have in your Bible. Also, James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, which would mean that this Jude or Judas is the half-brother of Jesus. We see him named in Matthew thirteen fifty-five when they're naming off his brothers. And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So here we have Jude, a half-brother of Jesus. You say, well, why didn't he say so? Well, he does list his relationship with Jesus, but it's a different one than we might expect. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. More important than being his half-brother to Jude is that he is a servant of Christ. He sees the Lord Jesus as his only master and Lord, and he serves him with his life, and he is serving him even by writing this letter. Now, who does he write this letter to? We're not really Sure, he doesn't specifically name who he's writing to, um, but we can know for sure what he is writing about and why. If you look at verse 3, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, so he had a plan already to write a letter to these people, to the church, to these Christians, and something has made him have to shift what the content of the letter is going to be. He finds out that there are false teachers or heretics, as some will refer to them as, or those who are against and opposed to the gospel that have made their way into the church. And so Jude, planning to write a letter already, has to shift his plan, and he writes this letter. Continuing in verse 3, he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, and here's the exhortation, to contend for the faith. That was once for all delivered to the saints. Probably something you've heard before. A well-known verse in the Bible. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is Jude's aim. His exhortation to them is to do this. To contend for the faith. It's imagery of someone who's exerting effort. Someone who is striving and struggling, earnestly, seriously struggling for the faith, maybe even a fight at times. Jude wants to wake them up. Hey, don't just sit back idly. 
Contend for the faith. Earnestly struggle for the faith. Put in some serious effort. This is language similar to what we see elsewhere in the New Testament, where Paul in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy says to guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Also very similar to when Paul is writing to the church at Philippi and he's encouraging the Christians there uh, to be those who are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So this is an urging and an appealing and an exhortation to promote and defend the faith, to promote and defend the gospel. The message of salvation found in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. He's saying, you have a problem. You need to contend for the faith. Now, sometimes we hear that we need to contend for the faith, or maybe it's another exhortation, and we are those lazy people who need a little motivation. And I think Jude provides that for those who are receiving this letter and for us even this morning. So I want to consider three motivations to contend for the faith. As we have this calling, uh, this exhortation to contend for the faith, we'll see that Jude provides three motivations to contend for the faith. The first motivation that we see is found in verse 4. And the motivation is the presence of false teachers. The presence of false teachers. Look in verse 4 with me. He's just told them to contend for the faith. In verse 3, verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, here we see that there are false teachers among them in the church. He begins by pointing them out by saying, for certain people. He doesn't name them. He doesn't say specifically who they are, but he does say certain people. And the way he says it, they would have understood who he was talking about. I think about uh, when I at home let our dog inside from being out, I inevitably leave his treats on the counter nine times out of ten. And everybody in the house knows that dad forgets to put them back where they belong. And so a lot of times they'll be found on the counter later and my kids and my wife will say, someone left the treats on the counter and everybody knows it was me. It's the same kind of language here. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. They know who he's talking about. And he knows who he's referring to as well. Certain people. Well, these certain people have crept in unnoticed. They've come in by stealth. They've been sneaky. They've weaseled their way into the church. They have an agenda. They have an ulterior motive. But they've crept in and they've come in unnoticed. In fact, it says later in the book of Jude that it's as though they're literally right in the midst of the community of the church. They're a part of you. And you haven't even noticed 
And you need to notice there are false teachers. These are wolves in sheep's clothing. They've infiltrated and they have an agenda. So he wants them to see the presence of the false teachers. And that motivates them to contend for the faith. He goes on, well, what is it that they're teaching? What are these false teachers all about? And we'll talk more about the false teachers next week. But what are they all about? He says that they're ungodly people in verse 4. He says they're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These wicked, unrighteous, ungodly people are among you, he says. And what they've done is they've perverted the grace of God. So what they've done is they've taken God's grace through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they've changed it. They've altered it. They've twisted it. And now they're promoting it within your church. And what they're doing is they're twisting and changing it so they they can give themselves and others an excuse to live as they please. It says they've perverted it into sensuality. They're pursuing all kinds of sexual sin in their life and they want to be able to pursue the passions of the flesh. flesh. So what do they do? They pervert the grace of God. They are antinomians. Those who are against God's law. Anti-against namas, God's law. They're antinomians. They want to take God's forgiveness and say, thank you for forgiving me. Now that I'm free, I'm free to live as I please and do as I want. And you should too. This is Romans 6, 1 kind of stuff, right? Where Paul is saying there are those who are going to say, well, if this grace is so amazing, should we just go on sinning so that grace may abound? May it never be. This is what the false teachers, those who are attacking the gospel are promoting amidst these people in this church. And Jude says, there they are. Wake up. They're among you. Let that motivate you to contend for the faith. Oftentimes we see this uh, sensuality listed in the New Testament opposed to godly living. Uh, Think of Galatians 5, where Paul is writing of the works of the flesh opposed to the fruit of the Spirit. He writes in Galatians 5, 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And then he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jude, very similarly in verse 4, says that these are those who were long ago designated for this condemnation. Jude wants them to see that they're inside the church and they're leading people astray. And what's their end? Judgment. Condemnation. This is an attack. An affront on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You must contend for the faith. Sometimes I 
When I'm thinking about this, uh, I was thinking about it yesterday, in fact, as I was pulling weeds, I thought, is it really motivation? Well, as I'm pulling weeds, I thought, oh, yeah, it is. Sometimes I'm all into yard work. Maybe some of you are. I had the app, you know, that tells me when to water, when to fertilize. I'm mowing, I'm edging, I'm trimming. Got to have the best yard on the block. And you, maybe some of you do this, you mow and you're like, look what I've done. <laughs> Looks amazing. And then there are years like this year where I'm like, you know, there are places where they have dirt and rocks for a yard. I could go for that. <laughs> I have no motivation to mow whatsoever this year to take care of the yard. But I got motivation yesterday. There are weeds all over. They had crept in unnoticed by me and they were everywhere and I had to pull them. I was motivated. Be motivated, Judas saying, they're in and amongst you. You must contend for the faith. Now, sometimes for us, it's not that they're even inside the church, the local church here for us, uh, but there are those who are trying to pervert the grace of God in the church at large. We must be motivated to contend for the faith, to earnestly struggle for the faith, promote the true gospel, defend the true gospel. And there are certainly those who are attacking the gospel, who are the ungodly, who are unrighteous, who are wicked, and we must contend against them. Now, don't take this as an excuse to fight amongst yourself if you have small disagreements. That's not the point here. But it is those who are opposed and attacking and perverting God's grace. They are among you, Jude says, be motivated to contend for the faith. Now, a second motivation that we see in these verses, we'll find in the first verse, we'll go back to the beginning, and it's the motivation that you belong to Christ. You belong to Christ. Need motivation to contend for the faith? You belong to Christ. Look with me at the first verse of Jude. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. I think sometimes we read these introductory verses of letters in the New Testament, we move right on past them, right? Let's get to the real good stuff. But I think we need to pay attention to these first verses so that we don't miss out on motivation to contend for the faith. Jude, I think, specifically chooses these words in these opening lines of his letter. And he wants to encourage them to contend for the faith because they belong to Christ. You see, just even a hint and a flavor of that when he refers to himself as a servant. The word is actually slave. And he's a slave. He, he is not his own, but he belongs to Christ, his Savior. And as one who belongs to him, he seeks to honor him with his life, to be obedient, to serve him. And then we see more specifically three words that Jude uses in the second half of the first verse to refer to those to whom he is writing. He calls them the called, beloved, and the kept. Called, beloved, and kept. 
And these three words really remind them and us of who they are, who we are in Christ, that we belong to him. And as those who belong to him, we ought to be motivated to contend for the faith. He first refers to him as the called to those who are called, he says. I think it's important to make sure we understand the distinction here. There are two kinds of calling when we talk about it theologically. There's the general call, that offer of salvation found through Christ that is available in a free offer to all. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The call to be saved for everyone. But here, he's specifically talking about the effectual call. Meaning that call that is effective, it accomplishes something. I appreciate the language of the London Baptist Confession, helpful when considering the effectual call to those who are called. To be called is to be effectually called by the word and the spirit out of that state of sin and death in which we are by nature into that state of grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. It's to come to a saving understanding of the things of God. It's to have your heart of stone removed and a heart of flesh given to you. And it's to have your will reoriented to that which is good. It's to be drawn to Jesus Christ. He's saying, you who are called, remember who you are as the called. God's people are often referred to as the called. We see in Romans 1.6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. God is often referred to as the one who is doing the calling. And I think of Romans 8.30. You know this verse well. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. To be called is to belong to God in Christ, to be those who are chosen by God, those who are called by God, those who are justified, declared righteous because of Christ and what he has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And it is to be those who will be glorified. It's to belong to him and say, oh, don't you remember who you are? You're the called, you belong to him. Be motivated to contend for the faith. And then he uses two other words, kind of almost qualifiers to the called that help with that word. He says, beloved in God the Father. Beloved in God the Father. This is speaking of God's present, active, and continuing love for his Son and for his people, those who belong to him, his love for them. We see God's love displayed on the cross through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We sang of his love even this morning. How deep the father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. I love the song, uh, the hymn that we sing, the love of God that we sing of if the ocean were filled with ink and if the sky was made of parchment and we took Every stalk on earth was made into a quill. We would drain the ocean dry and the, the sky couldn't even contain the whole of God's love for us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We are loved by the fathers, those who belong to him. This is the imagery of a child in the arms of their father, experiencing his love for them. Remember who you are as those who belong to him. You're loved by the father. It's a blessing and benefit of knowing Christ and being found in him. We've been adopted. We're part of the family of God. And he also says we are kept. He says to those who are called in verse one again, beloved in God, the father and kept for Jesus Christ, kept for Jesus Christ as those who have been called as his chosen sons and daughters, those who have been set apart for holiness and a life of service to your living Savior, and as those who are loved by the Father, know too that you are kept for Jesus Christ. You're being kept for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last days. You're kept, I think, of being guarded, as we read in 1 Peter 1.5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, as God's children, there is nothing we read in Romans 8 that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. You're being kept. You're being guarded. And we've been given the Holy Spirit as a promise, as a guarantee. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Jude knows that these gospel benefits For those who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation, these benefits of knowing him and being found in him motivate us to contend for the faith because he knows that sometimes we forget life is hard and life is difficult and there are challenges. There's a challenge they're facing and we face at times that we need to contend for the faith. We need to be reminded that we belong to him. We are loved by him and we are kept by him for his glory. You need to be reminded that God, he finishes what he has started. I think of Philippians 1, 6, and I'm sure of this. We can have confidence in this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We can have confidence and joy in knowing Christ. We can have confidence that every plan and every purpose that he has will be accomplished because God will finish what he has begun. And as those who belong to him, we can rejoice because we know him and we can be motivated to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's when we belong to things, when we're part of a family, maybe an organization, or even belonging to the church. You, you identify around the same name or the same values, the same belief, and you're about the same things, the same goals, and you want to advance those things. And so 
We as Christians, we, we gather around the cause of the gospel, promoting and defending the gospel. And so as we're reminded of those who belong together to Christ, we're motivated, encouraged to contend for the faith. What, what better motivation than to be reminded that we belong to him and all the blessings and benefits of Christ are ours. We want to contend for the faith, promote it, advance it, and defend it. As we're impressed with Christ, as we're in awe of him, we want to make sure that we contend for the faith. Well, the third and final motivation that we see here in the text this morning might seem kind of obvious, might kind of seem odd, but the motivation is that it is the faith. Need motivation to contend for the faith? Here's motivation. It is the faith. Get verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I mentioned earlier that Jude was intending to write another letter or something different about their common salvation. But he put that on hold as he's heard of the need to exhort and encourage and motivate the Christians to contend for the faith. He's calling to action here, but what is it he's calling them to contend for is the faith. Contend for the faith. I think it's important to understand what he means by the faith. There's an important distinction we can make. You have on one hand, the faith that is believed compared to the faith by which it is believed. Or maybe a better way to understand that is you have the content of the faith that we believe, the content, the truth, the message of what we believe given to us by God compared to our faith, our belief, our trust in the content What he's talking about here is the content, the message, the truth of what we believe. Contend for the faith, the message, the content of what we believe. Contend for the gospel. It's the most holy faith, he calls it in verse 20 later on in his letter. It's the message of the gospel. It's not just a faith or we'll contend for your faith or contend for whatever seems right in the moment. No, we are contending for the faith, the one true faith of the one true and living God that he has given to us. It is the faith and there is no other. We live in a world and they were living in a world where there are those saying, oh, there's another way. There are other faiths, quote unquote. And they try to advance their cause. And here they've been met with this new and novel idea that ought to raise a red flag. We ought to have red flags raised when there's some kind of new novel idea or something that's contrary to what we see in the scriptures, because we have the faith. And he says this faith is once for all delivered to the saints. 
There's finality. There's completeness to this faith. It's not something that should be changed or altered or twisted or added to. It is complete. It's final. And it's been given to us. We see this uh, tradition of it being given, the apostolic tradition of this faith being even uh, passed on and handed down in the scriptures. I think of 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul says in verse 3, For I delivered to you, we see him delivering, handing on, passing on, as of first importance, what I also received. So he's received this message, and he's passing it on. And what is the message? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He had received the message of the gospel. He had received the faith and he was passing it on as he had received it. We see the same kind of language throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11, Philippians 4, 9, 2 Thessalonians, Romans 6. I appreciate 1 Thessalonians 2.13. I think it's important. We read, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The faith that we contend for is not the word of men. It's not things that we have made up. It's not things that others have made up. But it is the faith, the message, the content of what we believe that has been given to us by God. And it's found here in the scriptures. You have the faith. So we must know the faith. If we are to, to contend for the faith makes sense that we should know the faith. And at the central part of the message of the faith, we have the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ who came to save and seek the lost by his life, death, and resurrection. And by faith and trust in him alone, we're forgiven and we are his children. We belong to him. The faith also includes this body of doctrine that has been held by the church over history. I think it's important we know that there is a lot in the faith. You may say, well, what is this faith? If it's a wider body of doctrine in addition to the gospel, this faith we find in the text of God's holy word, God's holy word we know is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge and faith and obedience. And it's in the text of scripture, in the content of this faith, that we come to know who God is as our great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the faith, the message of the faith, we also learn the plans and purposes of our great triune God. That he would save and redeem a people through the Son. Because we see that man is indeed sinful and wicked. We are God's enemy from birth. Because our representative Adam in the garden failed to keep God's law. We are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
and the punishment and judgment that we deserve is because of our sin. And it's death is the punishment and judgment we deserve. Separation from God for all eternity. And God will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. But in the content of faith, we also read, but God. But God in grace and mercy sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came in flesh and blood like you and I, so that he might rightly represent us before a holy God, that he might represent us as the last Adam. And as the last Adam, he would fulfill all righteousness, perfectly obeying God's law for us. And this obedience would lead him to the cross where he would take our place, take the punishment and judgment that we deserve for our sins. He would satisfy the wrath of God towards sin. And he would be buried and he would be raised for our justification, defeating sin and death. And we know from the faith that it is God who calls us as his chosen ones to salvation. And the Holy Spirit, he, he applies the work of Christ to us, giving us new birth, new life. A heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. And we're given the gracious gift of faith whereby we are enabled to believe to the saving of our souls. Because of the work of Christ, we are justified. We are declared righteous as law keepers, not because of anything we have done, but because of what he has done for us through his life of obedience. His righteousness is credited to our account. And we are reconciled to God and we have peace with God because of Christ, our savior. We're set apart as his children were adopted by our heavenly father. This is the faith. This is the content of what we believe. And we rejoice in this salvation. We give thanks to God, our savior, as we are sanctified by his grace. And as we seek to honor him out of this secure standing in Christ, we seek out of gratitude to honor him with our life of obedience And because of him and because our salvation, it's all of God, not of us. We have confidence and assurance. And then we who have enjoyed these benefits of Christ, who enjoy the blessings of knowing him, enjoying the benefits of the gospel, we we enjoy gathering together to participate in responding to God for who he is and what he has done for us. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we gather as a local church on Sunday mornings and we partake of the means of grace. We hear the preaching and teaching of God's word. We celebrate the Lord's Supper and baptism. And as those who belong to Christ, we know that this is not our home and we long for the day for a heavenly city a city that cannot be shaken. And we know with confidence that we are being kept for that. And we know that Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. This is the faith. This is the content of what we believe. This is what we are contending for. You have to know this. You have to know the scriptures. You have to know the truth 
of God who saves us through his son. And as you know it, as you behold him and as you become like him, as you are in awe of him and this great and amazing faith that we have, we're motivated to contend, to strive side by side for the progress of the gospel. We promote the faith. We defend it. Know the faith. And as you love this faith and you, as you love your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you enjoy the benefits that are ours in him, be motivated to contend for the faith. There are false teachers. There are those who attack the gospel, who promote a false gospel because there is no other. There are those trying to sway you to other beliefs and faiths, but there are no others. Because we who belong to Christ, we are loved by the Father. We are kept for him and we have the faith. Contend for it. In the summer of 1864, Abraham Lincoln was speaking to some troops who were returning home after battle and he wanted to express his appreciation to them and to encourage them and give them hope for the future. And he said in his remarks, the nation is worth fighting for to secure such an inestimable jewel. Talk about something worth fighting for. Talk about an inestimable jewel, something that is far beyond any worth or value we could place on it. Something that's worth fighting for. The faith, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be motivated as those who belong to Christ out of your safe standing in him to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Our Father, we are in awe of your greatness We're in awe of your kindness, of your steadfast love that you have shown to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as those who have been forgiven of our sins, who have had our sins removed as far as the east is from the west, as those who have the righteousness of Christ credited to our account as those who are being held and being guarded and being kept by your spirit for salvation ready to be revealed. May we be motivated, Father, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. May we be those who link arms and strive together to promote and defend the truth as the church is called to be a pillar and buttress for the truth. God, may that be true of us as we are filled with the hope of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll close with these words from the end of the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of of his glory and with great joy to the whole, to our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a wonderful day in the Lord.